Today's Bible reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along with what is on the screen. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Well, good to see you here at the EU public meeting, our first week of public meetings for the year. A uh, special welcome to you if I, if you uh, haven't met you before because you're a first year or just uh, you're dropping into the EU public meeting for the first time. My name is Rowan Kemp. I have the privilege of leading the staff team that works alongside the EU here at Sydney Uni. Um, I'm just uh, interested in doing a quick survey before we get going. And the survey is this. I wonder how many contact hours you will have each week this semester. So I want you to do just a quick calculation. I know that this week you probably don't have tutes and maybe your labs haven't started, but when it's all going, how many contact hours will you have a week? Do a rough calculation in your head. I'll tell you about my experience while you're doing the calculation, okay? Uh, when I enrolled at Sydney Uni, I was doing a Bachelor of Ele uh, Electrical Engineering. Uh, in second year, I topped out at 32 contact hours a week. Now, that was pretty heavy, um, so much so that half of our year group transferred to science the next year. Uh, we all went to science and we, call, we did third year science and we called it the science holiday because, frankly, in science, we only had 20 hours a week and that was, that was seriously light. Um, but then I still felt like 20 hours was a pretty high commitment, so the next year I decided to do honours in pure maths uh, why pure maths? Well, because I worked out it had a total of eight contact hours a week. <laughs> that was far better. And then I discovered it. The land of which I'd only heard rumours. The land that I thought was a myth, but is actually reality. It's the land of the zero contact hours. This land exists. It's called postgraduate research. Zero contact hours a week. It was amazing. So I actually went and lived there for a few years. Glorious. So I want to do a quick survey. When you add it up, how many contact hours a week will you have at uni this semester? Anyone going to do 30 plus hours a week? Anyone? You're all soft. Okay. <laughs> anyone, anyone coming in at between 20 and 30 hours a week contact hours? Yeah. Okay. I, I respect. Anyone between, you know, 13 to 19? So they reckon 13? 
a whole bunch of you. Yeah, okay. Anyone in the sort of 8 to 12? Yeah, I'm, I know what you're talking about. That's the way to live life. 8 to 12 hours a week. Okay, now we get to the serious. Anyone less than 8 hours a week? Put your hand up. Less than eight. Yeah, let's put your hand up. Come on, you've worked hard to get there. Less than 8 hours a week. Keep your hand up if it's less than 5 hours a week. I don't know what the rest of you are doing, but these people have got there less than five hours a week. Anyone less than three hours a week? Okay. Are, are, you in, are you in the land of zero? The land of zero. A round of applause for our brother. I think that's pretty impressive. Now, no matter how many contact hours a week you have, I'm hoping that this year you will take one hour out of your week or maybe for our brother, add an hour into your week, um, <laughs> to make the EU public meeting this semester a priority for you. Each week, every week, one hour. Give one hour to the EU public meeting, whether you're a first year or whether you're a postgrad living in the, the beautiful land of zero hours. Two quick reasons why. First of all, privilege. Privilege. It is an enormous privilege to have rich and challenging Bible teaching every week in your place of work or study. For almost all of us, when you graduate and leave uni, that will not be on offer for you. There's a rich feast on offer here at uni through the EU and the EU public meetings. I want to encourage you to make the most of it while you can. I regularly meet up with graduates who tell me that it was actually only after they left uni that they realised what a privilege it was to have rich Bible teaching right on tap, right there on campus every week. Don't pass up the privilege and regret it later. Secondly, second reason why I think you should make public meetings a priority this semester is vision. Vision. What vision do you have for yourself this year at uni? I mean, you're going to learn stacks this year through whatever you're studying at uni, whether that's as a first year or as a postgrad. But do you have a vision for yourself this year that includes growing as a Christian, growing in Christian maturity this year? Are you planning to grow more like the Lord Jesus in your understanding of God's truth, in your character, in your convictions, in your priorities and your passions? Are you planning to grow in your Christian understanding so that it will sort of keep pace with all the other learning that you're going to do this year? Do you want to have a stronger hope? Do you want to have greater love? Do you want to have deeper faith? Is that the vision you have for yourself this year? I hope it is because... The scriptures tell us that that's God's vision for you this year. That's what he wants for you this year. And the EU wants to help you get there. That's what EU public meetings are about, Bible study groups, fusion training courses, all designed to help you grow in your faith and witness, to encourage you to submit every aspect of your life to the Lordship of Jesus. So I hope you make it a priority just for one hour a week this year to come along to the public meeting so we can learn together from God's Word. Okay, let's get into it. As we get into today, I have a question for you, and it's a question up on the screen. What in the world is wrong with the church? What in the world is wrong with the church? Whether you're a Christian or not, you can probably come up with an answer to that question. You might say, well, I think what's wrong with the church is that it's irrelevant. The church is failing to meet people in today's world at their real point of need, it's attempting to provide pre-scientific answers to a world that's moved on. 
where science and economics now reign supreme, the church is now irrelevant. You might say that. Well, you might say, well, what's wrong with the church is, it, is that it's turned into an institution. It's now more a museum than a movement. It's all about perpetuating its own power and protecting its own. It's full of bureaucrats and bishops and it's lost its beating missional heart. What's wrong with the church is that it's an institution. Well, you might say what's wrong with the church is that it's out of touch. It's lost touch with wider society, with the values and the vibe of our culture. It just doesn't know how to communicate effectively anymore, how to read and fit in with our culture. It's just out of touch. Now, I think there actually is some strength to all those critiques, but I actually think there's a bigger problem, a deeper problem. And it's not about being out of touch. It's actually, it's actually the opposite of that. What in the world is wrong with the church? It's that the church, far too often, is worldly. The church, far too often, is worldly. Just think for a moment. Consider the wealth of the Christian churches in the developed world. It is immense. The church in the developed world is immensely wealthy. And then think about the 200 million Christians who are living in poverty around the world let alone the one billion who live in poverty worldwide. Consider the regular pronouncements that we hear from Christian leaders and preachers on sex, on greed, on corruption, on abuse of power, and then think, how often is the church rocked by scandal when its leaders are caught up by sex, greed, corruption, abuse of power? Consider the constant church splitting that is a feature of Protestantism. Uh, one estimate, and get this, one estimate is that this week there will be five new Protestant denominations. And again next week, and the, by the end of the year there will be 300 new Protestant denominations in the world. The constant church splitting that goes on. Now, no doubt sometimes it's for good reasons, but I suspect that actually, more often than not, it's a feature of the pride of preachers and a tendency even among church leaders towards puffed-up arrogance over one another. Or, and my final example, and this is much closer to home and much more awful, consider the current Australian Royal Commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse. I don't know if you've been keeping track or even just occasionally listening, but the the stories that are coming out of the Royal Commission are awful to hear. And much of this abuse happened in Christian institutions. I mean, you can only be full of respect for those who've had the courage to speak up and to shine the light onto the terrible wrongs that have been committed and often under Christian leadership. And that horror has only now been compounded by what seems to be the church's slowness to bear responsibility for what's happened on its watch. What in the world is wrong with the church? It's that God's church far too often is worldly. We're going to see how this plays out and, and what we can do about it as we look at this book of 1 Corinthians this year in the Christian New Testament. 
The Corinthian church was a church that had plenty of problems. So if you've got your Bible there, or you can call it up on your phone, if you have a good Bible app, call it up on that, or if you don't have a good Bible app, uh, go to biblegateway.com, call it up there, 1 Corinthians, maybe just look along with the person next to you if that's all too hard for you. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians and see how this plays out. Let me just read to you the first line or two from this letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to this Corinthian church. It starts like this. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth. Now, just pausing there for a sec, if we're going to make sense of this letter in the Christian New Testament, we need to understand a little bit about Corinth, what it was like, and a little bit about the church that was there. So both of those are going to help us understand what was going on at the time and why Paul wrote this letter. So first of all, the vibe of the city, the vibe of the city of Corinth, what was it like? Well, it's probably going to help you if you know where Corinth is. Uh, Here's a map for you. Thank you, Google Earth. There's the Mediterranean. There's, you can see Italy there, the boot, North Africa down the bottom, Greece, the area where the green arrow is, and that's pointing right at Corinth. Now, it's hard to see there on the screen maybe, but Corinth, it's sort of got water either side of it. So let's zoom in a bit more. This is what that little section of Corinth looks like. Corinth was a city on this very narrow bit of land. One of the ancient geographers of the world, I think person, you know, writing about geography back in the ancient times, they attributed the wealth of Corinth to its strategic location. It was here on this narrow bit of land that separates the south of Greece from the rest of northern Greece. That little bit of land you're looking at there is only nine kilometres long. Uh, so in order to avoid having to sometimes make the treacherous sea route around down under the south, they actually built a paved road across that bit of land so you could drag your ship for nine kilometres across. Well, they were tough in those days, you know, and actually that was an easier option, believe it or not, than taking your boat around under the south because it was quite treacherous. Because of its strategic location, both for land and sea, uh, Corinth was quite a prosperous city. Uh, Here's a picture of ancient Corinth, uh, if you went there today. Uh, The Corinth to which Paul wrote, it was a sizable city. It was uh, rebuilt by Julius Caesar in about 44 BC. It was one of the most important Roman cities. It was the capital of its province, of Achaia, and it was where the provincial governor resided. Uh, You can see here the remnants actually of a temple, a temple to Apollo. Uh, Like any Roman city of its day, it was cosmopolitan, religiously pluralistic. So it was wealthy, it was important, it was strategic, it was cosmopolitan, it was pluralistic. That's what Corinth was like. It was a happening place, sort of like Melbourne. Um, (laughs) I show you these pictures because I want you to realise that this was a real place. These were real people that the Apostle Paul was writing to. They were followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, like many, I presume, in the room today. And the amazing thing is about our God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ that he's going to speak to us today through this historically conditioned word that the Apostle Paul wrote to those early Christian believers. It was God's word to them and it becomes God's word to us. So that's a bit about the vibe of the city. What about the church? The Christian church was there, which as uh, it says there in verse 2, the church of God that was in Corinth. 
Well, we're blessed actually to have a record elsewhere in the New Testament about this, about how this church in Corinth was planted. And you can read it later in Acts chapter 18. I'll summarise the background for you. Acts 18 tells us that Paul first arrived in the city of Corinth on his second missionary journey, sort of around the Mediterranean, as was his custom when he arrived there. The first thing he did was he announced the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Jewish community. That was there. That was always what he did first. But when they got sick of him and started abusing him, as often happened, uh, he then went to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles, those who worshipped presumably in the temple of Apollo and other temples like it all around the city, those who worshipped idols. And he proclaimed that Jesus is Lord to them instead. And you read in Acts 18, people became Christians. That's what happens when you proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we should expect to see on campus this year. As we proclaim the gospel, yes, people will become Christians. And we're told in Acts 18 that many of the Corinthians who heard Paul, they believed and were baptised. Some were Jews who turned to Christ. Uh, But it seems from Acts 18 that most of the believers were actually from a pagan background. They were Gentiles. They switched from worshipping idols, like at the temple, to worshipping Jesus as Lord. That switch from worshipping idols, the pagan sort of worship, to worshipping Jesus, that's going to be really important for what's going on in their church. Uh, We read Paul stayed in Corinth for 18 months as sort of he was the church planter. He arrived, 18 months worked there, taught the word of God to this church that he'd founded under God. Now, without doubt, Paul was an incredibly effective uh, evangelising church planter, not the least here in Corinth. So what's relevant here is a fact that it appears that Paul was not a very impressive public speaker, despite being a very effective church planter. Now, we get this actually from Paul's own comment in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. Let me read it for you, 2 Corinthians 10, 10. He writes to this same church a bit later. He says, for they say, that is about him, his his detractors, they say his letters are weighty and strong but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. So Paul used, you know, God used Paul mightily over 18 months to plant this church, but he actually wasn't that impressive by Corinthian standards anyway in his preaching. But then after 18 months, Paul left this baby church plant and he moved on to continue elsewhere. But it was then that Apollos arrived. So Acts 18 describes Apollos as learned with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures, that would be the Old Testament scriptures, who spoke with great fervour and boldness. We're told that Apollos travelled around, he was a great help to all the believers, that he would vigorously refute the Jews in public debate, proving from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. It seems that Apollos, different to Paul, was a very impressive public speaker, And inadvertently, that difference between the two caused a problem for the Corinthians. So this brings us then to the first issue Paul takes up with the Corinthian Christians. He rebukes them for being a fractured and a factional community. So have a look with your Bible there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. Paul writes, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Kephas, that's Peter, or I belong to Christ. 
So the Corinthian church was splitting itself over their favourite Christian leaders. I'm in Paul's crew. Nah, 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 I'm with Apollos, he's the bomb. By making those sort of personal alliances and allegiances, they were actually breaking the church apart into factions. Now, was there actually a Kephas, a Peter group? Was there actually a Christ group? For various reasons, I'm not sure they were. I mean, they're not mentioned later in the, in the letter at all. I actually think what Paul's doing here is he's showing them how ridiculous their factions are by adding a few of his own. You can imagine the Corinthians looking around as Paul's letter was read out, going, I follow Paul. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's those group of losers over there. They're the ones following Paul. And I follow Apollos. Oh, that's us. We're following Apollos. And I follow Peter. Is anyone here following Peter? I don't think anyone here is following Peter. And I follow Christ. Well, there's no one here following Christ. Oh, problem. I wonder if Paul's pointing out the ridiculous nature of their behaviour by adding a few more factions of his own. He then ramps it up in verse 13. Have a look there of chapter 1. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptised into the name of Paul? The implicit message here is just, which we're going to come back to later, is Christ is central. Don't take your eyes off Jesus and put human leaders in the focus. We're going to come back to that later. So this is the first problem that Paul addresses, their factionalism. And as you read through these first four chapters, you get a picture of how this factionalism plays out among them. When you read through the chapters, he talks about divisions and quarrels that have arisen because of this factionalism. He says there's jealousy, you're puffed up, you're arrogant over each other, you boast in your human leaders, all stemming out of this factionalism. But then what Paul does is he provides a more, a more incisive critique of what's going on amongst them. Now, um, every year, because of my bad genes, that is not the ones I'm wearing, the ones that I was born with, I have to go for a skin check, right? Because, you know, I've got blemishes and moles on my skin and stuff. I have to go to the GP and ask them to check my skin. And I apologise in advance if you're eating your lunch here. But I imagine the Corinthian situation is a bit like a blemish on the skin. You look at it, their factionalised sort of allegiance to human leaders. You look at it and you go, well, that's not right. It, it looks wrong. But actually, this blemish, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't stand out too much from the surrounding culture. It's just like sort of everybody else in Corinth. That's sort of arguing over leaders. Like, it's, it just sort of blends in a little bit. It doesn't look too bad. Well, what then Paul does is Paul takes up the scalpel and he starts cutting. Because what he wants to do is he wants to show them just how sick this sickness is. And he's going to cut down into the blemish and reveal the layers underneath it and you're going to see how gross it is underneath. Now, as he cuts in with these first four chapters of the letter, we're going to see what the real problem is. It might not look too bad on top, but as you get down, it is ugly, sick and dangerous. So let's follow Paul's incision. Why had the Corinthians gone down this track of factionalised allegiance to different Christian teachers? 
Well, when he cuts into the problem, the answer comes in two layers. First layer down. They were misunderstanding true wisdom. This is their first underlying problem. They had kept hold of a worldly understanding of what it meant to be wise. See, in the first century, you would often come across itinerant travelling philosophers. I know that we laugh at everybody who does a philosophy degree. What job could they ever get? Actually, their problem is they're just 2,000 years too late. If they went back 2,000 years as a philosopher, you, would be a, you could be a very famous and wealthy person. Now, philosopher just means literally wisdom lover. And when these wise ones would enter a city, the first thing they would do is they would proclaim their own great reputation. Let me tell you who I have spoken with, who I have talked to, who has esteemed me around the world. They would do that first. Secondly, they would then extemporise in impressive oral displays. They would use all the standards of persuasive rhetoric of their day with great flair to mount impressive persuasive arguments. This, in, the, in that day, was what wisdom looked like. Wisdom was loud and proud. It was impressive speaking, fancy debating styles. If you could pull that off, then you were a wise one. Paul points out to the Corinthian Christians, they had kept hold of that view, that understanding of what wisdom looked like as they came into the church. They'd kept their culture's value system for work, working out what wisdom looked like and now they're applying it in their church context to Christian teachers. So now they're picking their favourite leader based on these worldly standards of rhetoric. You get a bit of a sense of it if you look in your Bible there, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 to 20. 1 Corinthians 3, 18 to 20. Paul says, Do not deceive yourselves. If you think that you are wise in this age, you should become fools, so that you might become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Paul's encouraging them, see here, to abandon that worldly set of values regarding what's wise, take on instead God's wisdom. And where he focuses their attention when you read through the chapter is on Jesus' death on the cross. Because what he's going to say is that God's wisdom is displayed in Jesus' death on the cross. And that's a wisdom which makes no sense in the wisdom of the world. But we're going to speak a lot more about that next week. And by the way, that'll be a great week to bring anyone who is exploring the Christian faith, any of your non-Christian friends, because that whole question of what really is wise, where will we find true wisdom, that underlies the whole university enterprise, doesn't it? We're here because we want to be wise and paid a lot of money for it. That whole question of wisdom, what is it like, where do you find it, it takes you straight to the heart of the Christian message about Jesus, actually, and the meaning of his death on the cross. So it would be a great week next week to, as we dig in a bit more into these chapters, invite some of your non-Christian friends along, maybe, so that we could explore that together. Okay, so why have they got caught up on their factionalism? Answer, they've not let go of the worldly understanding of wisdom from their culture. Uh, an international student who, who was here at Sydney Uni uh, came over to my house with a bunch of other uh, local students 
And um, at one particular point, while people were sort of busy talking, she leant across the table to me and just said to me, how come, how come you guys don't take off your shoes at the front door? Because she was grossed out by the fact that we all left our shoes on. And actually, that's a very reasonable question and a very reasonable response, see, because think about all the garbage on the bottom of your shoes that you just then walk through your house right into the kitchen where you're about to eat. Now, you're all going to take your shoes off. And next, you know, anyway, well, I don't know. Um, why walk it all through your house? That's not very hygienic, right? Fair point. Well, that was the Corinthian church's problem. They were walking all the worldliness right into God's house. I don't mean the building they meet in. I mean the community, because you are God's temple, we're told in these chapters. They're walking worldly values right into the church. And as a result of bringing all that rubbish into the house, they're now fighting over it. If they'd just left that worldly understanding of wisdom at the door, they wouldn't be having these fights. Which makes you think, we wouldn't do that, would we, as Christian community now? Are there times when we bring worldly values into the church which should be left at the door and then that results in fights? That wouldn't happen. Well, I think the answer is yes, that does happen actually. What happens when we bring in worldly ideas of what's cool and what's not and we bring that sort of idea into the church? Well, as a result of that, what happens is we end up fighting and arguing about what vibe our church should have, what it should look and feel like. We fight about music and logos and lighting and design, even what clothes people should wear at the front. Isn't that mostly just what our world says is cool and what is not, and we've just walked it in and now fighting over it? When the scripture, does the scripture say any of that really matters? What happens when we bring the worldly ideas about leadership into our churches? Well, then we end up arguing about who's the better leader based on categories like charisma or vision-setting ability. Or What happens when we bring worldly ideas about what an impressive ministry looks like into the church? Well, then we start fighting over how fancy the building ought to be. We start judging ministries purely on their numbers. See, our culture might say, this thing matters, whatever the this is, right? Look and feel, impressiveness, this thing really matters. But if the Bible tells us that in the Christian community, this thing does not matter, then we need to leave that thing at the door and not walk it in. Wipe that worldliness off our feet when we come together as the house of God. But as Paul cuts in, right, he's cutting in, he has a deeper point to make as well. Because deep down, at root, he says, you are immature, worldly believers. Have a look, you've got your Bible there, at chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. Chapter 3, 1 to 4. And so, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for solid food. Even now you are still not ready, for you are still of the flesh. Or in one translation, still worldly. For as long as there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, 
are you not of the flesh and behaving according to human inclination? For when one says, I belong to Paul, and another, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely human? You see how he's working at the top level, your factionalism, and he's diagnosing what's going on underneath. You're just babies. You're not matured in your faith. This is Paul's big point. All that quarrelling and jealousy, puffed-up arrogance, it's all unmitigated worldliness. They're still behaving as infants, baby Christians. They ought to be ready for steak, solid food. They're still on bottle formula. They know Jesus, that's sure, they're Christians, but they've not put off that worldliness, that behaviour and values that characterised them before they came to Christ. So what in the world is wrong with the church? Answer, far too often the church of God is still worldly. It's not thrown off the worldly behaviour. It's not come to maturity in Jesus. Well, what's Paul's solution? Surely there must be an answer. Does he have an answer? Yes, he does. And the answer is Jesus. Paul goes back to basics. Good old milk. Baby food. He reminds them of who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, and then most importantly, he reminds them of how that transforms their identity transformed identity through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the key to renewed living. So knowing where he was... Now, when Paul, you know, Paul knew, heard what was going on at Corinth, he sits down to write them a letter, he knows what he's going to say. He's not like you writing an arts essay, right? Where you sort of start, you don't really know where you're going to go. You'll just get... Oh, look, I landed there. <laughs> Conclusion, right? I know that's how you do it. Um, Paul has set out, he knows what he wants to say and he telegraphs that, he signals it right up front. So go back to chapter 1 and just have a look at the first nine verses with me. As I just read it out to you, just get the vibe, right? Get the vibe. Paul, called to be an apostle of the J-man by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in the J-man, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call on the name of the J-man, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the J-man. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that has been given you in the J-man. For in every way you have been enriched in him in speech and knowledge of every kind, just as the testimony of the J-man has been strengthened among you so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of the J-man. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you may be blameless on the day of the J-man. God is faithful. By him you were called into the fellowship of his son, the J-man. Now, you probably found that a fairly distracting thing to do, but did you? the point is just to, to make clear to you, do you notice how often Paul is focusing them on Jesus in these opening nine verses. It is all about Jesus. That's not just habit. That's not just happenstance. This is deliberate. He's refocusing them on Jesus and particularly on their identity in him. Look at verse 2. Those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified means made holy, special, set apart for God through Jesus. They are, after all, the church of God, as we saw way back in verse 2. Then again, called to be saints there in verse 2. It comes from the same word as sanctified. It's all about their identity. 
this new identity that they have in Jesus, holy, sanctified, made pure by Jesus and now to live for him. That is the answer to their immature worldliness. Get back to your identity in Christ. They've been made holy by God, set apart for him, and now they're called to live out that life for him. And what you then see, if you read through these chapters, is the answer being the Lord Jesus. That works up through all the levels of Paul's incision. The answer to their immature worldliness is, know your identity in Jesus Christ. You are sanctified. The answer to their misunderstanding true wisdom is, look at the death of Jesus. That's true wisdom. The answer to being a factional and fractured community is, know that you are united in Christ. Be of one mind and purpose. Chapter 1, verse 10. Paul completely focuses them on Jesus, on their identity in him, urges them to live out that identity. You know why? Because that is the answer for how you mature in Jesus. You mature by knowing Jesus better and going deeper into him and that, friends, is our task this year. To go deeper into Jesus, to know him better, love him more and understand the astounding transformation of our character that takes place when we take our identity in him who died for us. So that's what we'll explore together this year.